0: Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. Severine Otisere is a professor of political science at Barnard College, Columbia University, whose work over 20 years has taken her to Afghanistan, the Democratic Republic of the Congo, and Kosovo. And what she's experienced has led her to become a critic of the top-down, outsider-led approach to international peacekeeping, uh, what she calls... Peace Incorporated, in which the UN and Western diplomats run the show. And she argues that in those sorts of operations, those outside peacekeepers and aid officials tend to interact primarily with national-level political and military leaders and rarely venture into the local conflict zones or come equipped with in-depth knowledge of the history, politics, and culture of the countries that they seek to help. She joins us now to discuss her new book from Oxford University Press, The Front Lines of Peace, An Insider's Guide to Changing the World. Welcome.
1: Thank you so much, Leonard, and thank you for having me on your show today.
0: Didn't you originally want to be a journalist because of stories that your father told you about his experiences?
1: Yes, I, I did. Uh, and I would have made a terrible, terrible journalist. <laughs> I, yes, I, I, I tried. I, I took the competitive exam to enter the best journalism school in France. I studied to be a journalist, uh, but uh, I got rejected from journalism school because apparently the jury thought that I had a humanitarian vocation and not a journalistic one.
0: You went to Kosovo and then Congo. Uh, We're going to call it Congo rather than Democratic Republic of the Congo, just for convenience sake, I hope. Who sent you?
1: So it was Doctors Without Borders, I mean, uh, in Kosovo it was Doctors of the World and uh, in Congo that was Doctors Without Borders, Médecins Sans Frontières, and I was working for them as a context analyst mostly, so basically analyzing the political, security, humanitarian situation so that we we could provide good medical care to people based in conflict zones.
0: And uh, you say that after six months, you felt that you and everyone else working to bring peace didn't really understand what was going on.
1: Yes, I did. So it was a long time ago. It was 20 years ago. Oh, yes. 20 years ago to the date. Uh, I. It was in 2001. And at the time, Congo was... Really, in in the middle of um, what was the deadliest conflict since World War II at the time, there were, I think, already three million people who had been killed, uh, and and as you know, the war continues up to today. We we are now at close to six million, according to to some estimates. And so, when when I went to Congo, I was very young. I was twenty. I think at the time, uh, and uh, I had to try to understand what was going on, but every time I asked diplomats, peacekeepers, um, analysts, uh, they would tell me, oh, for instance, it's Rwanda versus Congo. Uh, And then I would go to a village and see that people allied with Rwanda were fighting with other people allied with Rwanda, And I was like, that doesn't make sense. So basically, to make a long story short, I spent six months in Congo. I talked to as many people as I could. And I realized that we just didn't understand what was going on in Congo at the time.
0: When violence breaks out, foreign nations and the U.N. often engage in peace-building, in quotes, efforts. And you say it's a peace industry that's inherently flawed. Aren't their it's- motives well-intentioned?
1: Well, you can be well-intentioned and flawed at the same time. Um, and I, I- don't deny that most of the United Nations officials and peacekeepers and most of the diplomats have met in conflict zones are extremely, extremely well-intentioned. They, they do want to help the country in which they are based. They want to help the civilian population. They make a lot of sacrifices. Sometimes they sacrifice their own lives because it's dangerous work. So so they are extremely well-intentioned in general. There are exceptions, of course. But the thing is that we have uh, uh, in what I call the international aid system, uh, um, we, we have a way of going about building peace, decreasing violence that just doesn't work.
0: And as you tell it, the people you were working with often come off as clueless at best and, and even racist at worst. They, they complained that the Congolese assistants were lazy, stupid, incompetent, untrustworthy, corrupt, thieves, and liars. And didn't you hear similar complaints in Kosovo and Afghanistan? So it wasn't just about Africans.
1: Yes, exactly. And that's what's really sad. And that's one of the biggest problems in the international aid circles is that we have uh, this very negative perception of the people who leave the conflict, who actually are living in the conflict zones, whether we're talking about people in Afghanistan, in Kosovo, in Congo. I've, I've been to 12 different conflict zones since my first first. Uh, first venture in in, in the early 2000s and everywhere I've been, whether I was in Timor-Leste, which is in Asia, or whether I was in Israel and the Palestinian territories or in Colombia, I heard negative statements about, uh, about the local populations. Uh, so the common one is, oh, they're so violent. So I've heard that <laughs> about <laughs> about everyone, uh, and and then people would tell me, but of course they're violent. Look, they are at war. Like yeah, it's a bit more complicated than that, um, and and also some some very racist or or pejorative things. So yes, it's it's one of the of the major general problem with the international aid world.
0: The NGOs tend to hire from elite institutions. Is that a bad idea?
1: Not necessarily. I mean, I teach at an elite institution, as mm-hmm. you know. Uh and, and some of my former students are absolutely fantastic peace builders. So it's not the problem of hiring from elite institutions. It's more the the people that we select and uh, and also the the attitude that we encourage. So the people that we select, uh, I mean that we usually select people who have what I call systematic expertise. So for ex- example, example there experts in human rights or gender, or they know how to organize elections. And, and they've done that all over the world. So they spend six months in, in a country, they organize elections, and then they go to another country, they organize elections, etc. or same for gender. And the thing is that when they arrive in their new posting, they don't know anything about the local politics, the local culture, the local society, the local histories. and And I was one of them. You know, when I arrived in Congo in the 2000s, I just didn't understand anything and I knew nothing. Um, So that's that's the first part.
0: Your book is a combination of reportage and memoir of your career as an international aid worker. Uh, So we're seeing these things through your eyes and those of of aid workers and, and victims of violence. But are those the sorts of stories that are generally not told?
1: Well, the stories that are generally not told are the stories of ordinary people. Uh, and that's the stories I wanted to tell. Uh, my own stories. I'm telling them just because my editor and and my agents they kept asking me every time they read a draft of the book. They were like, "But you need to tell us more about you and how you felt and what uh-huh. you think." So, so apparently, you know, that's what you need to do if you if you want to to write a good book. So, you know, I put more stories of my about myself. Although, as an academic, it's really really uncomfortable. Anyway the stories that i really like telling and and the stories that you know that make up most of the book are all the stories of ordinary people of people who live in congo in uh colombia in somalia who live sometimes in big cities sometimes in, in tiny tiny villages that are so remote you, you you take hours and multiple forms of transportation to get there but these people are Absolutely amazing, because they have figured out how to build peace in the most balanced circumstances in the world.
0: But wasn't that difficult for you? Because uh, you weren't you forced to keep a distance from uh, the people you were there to help?
1: When I was a what I call a member of Peace Inc. When I was a humanitarian mm-hmm. aid worker working for this big uh, non-governmental organizations? Yes, I I was. Because when you work for international and and non-governmental organizations on the ground, you have to respect a lot of uh, rules, a lot of constraints. You cannot go to certain places, to certain neighborhood. You have to live in compounds that are heavily fortified, you know, with the really, really big walls and the barbed wires on top of it. You have to always, for instance, in Afghanistan, I, I was not allowed to walk uh, and, and to walk around. I mean, first I was not allowed to leave my compound without a man next to me, uh, who would pretend to be my brother, or my father, or my husband. Uh, But then, even when I was like, And and why (laughs) was that?
0: And, And why was that? I mean, is that just sexist thinking? (laughs)
1: <laughs> well, it was because it was in 2002, and it was mm-hmm. right after the fall of the Taliban. And uh, there was still the the law in Afghanistan uh, had just changed. But my organization at the time wanted to be on the safe side. So even though legally I was, you know, I could have gone outside, my organization just didn't want to take the chance. So they stayed with the old rule, and the old rule was women are not allowed to leave the place mm. without having the father, the brother, or the husband with them. Uh. So I had always to. It, I mean, it was really uncomfortable. Sometimes I would like talk to a man I didn't know. I was like, "Hi, can you pretend to be my dad or my husband, please?" <laughs> that's Horrible. <laughs> anyway, um, the t- talking. Uh, you know, talking to people, walking around. To me, that's that's the best way to start getting the feel of a new place. And uh, there are many places where you cannot do that when you work for international mm-hmm. and non-governmental organizations because it's deemed to be too dangerous, too risky.
0: And I'm assuming that that it's complicated even further now because of COVID-19.
1: Exactly, exactly. The, the friends I have who are still working on the ground uh, are, are dealing with that. So it's even more complicated, again, it's complicated if you are an outsider, if you are a foreigner. Now, if you are a member of the community, the discussion is completely different and the problems are completely different. And, and in the book, I argue that if we want to build peace, we have to rely on the members of the community.
0: And you argue in the book that the flaws are baked into the international aid economy what role do you think NGOs, philanthropists, and individual do-gooders should play in, in funding and enabling peace-building operations around the world?
1: I'm so glad that you asked this question, Leonard, because the the, the research that I've done shows that there is a role for international, uh, for outsiders, for foreigners like you and I, and, and some of our, our audience today, uh, we can play a role, but not the one we're currently playing. Uh, so the things that we can bring to inhabitants of conflict zones, according to when I was speaking with Congolese people, Afghan people, Kosovo, like you know, all of the people I've met in my research, they say, well, you can bring funding. Uh, very often they request for money to put in place um, peace processes. And what's really interesting is that the funding they request is a fraction of the money that we spend on these big international conferences. So it is much more effective. It actually builds peace. It decreases violence significantly, decreases the number of killings uh, and, and raping, etc. cetera. And at the same time, uh, it is much cheaper. So, to give you a sense, uh, a big international conferences, for instance, to resolve the con- the conflict in Congo or in the Korean Peninsula, uh, that would be five hundred million, for instance, uh, the summit to resolve the conflict in the Korean Peninsula. A con- uh,
0: but wait, that's a conference. The conference then decide, determines how the, the problem is going to be approached or is the conference a thing in itself?
1: It, it's, a, it's a peace conference. And at the end of the peace conference, you sign a peace treaty and everybody's happy uh, and everybody go back home and then starts fighting again. Um, So, yeah, so, but it's just to give you a sense, I I have like exact figure in the book for many different conflicts. We're talking about millions of dollars or hundreds of millions of dollars. And now if you look at the peace initiatives that are grassroots, bottom up, the ones that work, uh, what I've seen is that they cost $5,000. Five thousand uh, dollars. One of the stories I tell hmm. is someone who managed to help seven thousand people with five thousand uh, dollars. Another story, they managed to uh, to help a whole area with three hundred villages for fifty thousand to sixty thousand dollars. So funding is really important, and and again, we don't need a lot of money. And there are a lot of other things that outsiders can bring, uh, for example, ideas from elsewhere, uh, connections with uh, national and international elite, uh, protection, protection is very important. Uh, So that's why I think it's really important that we keep uh, supporting people in conflict zones, but we change the way we do that.
0: Don't donors to NGOs favor large organizations? Uh, And those NGOs tend to hire from elite institutions. So is there uh, a built-in structural problem?
1: Yes, they favor large organizations uh, and they favor especially organizations where people speak their language, meaning English or sometimes Mm -hmm. French. uh, uh, and also when they speak the international aid language, you know, there are all of these buzzwords like resilience and and uh, gender something and gender something else. Gender is really big currently, but resilience is even bigger. So all of these buzzwords that you have to put in your proposals so that you can get the funding. Also, you have to know how to structure a proposal and how to have indicators that will show that you're effective. So, it's not only large organizations, it's really organizations where, where the staff knows how to speak the international language and how to interact with donors. And this is a skill set. Uh, that you can develop, again, when you go to these elite institutions like Columbia University where I teach or Harvard or places like that. Uh, but uh, it's a skill set that doesn't have a lot of of connection to the actual effectiveness of your programs on the ground.
0: Well, you uh, began, as you said, working for Doctors Without Borders. Don't they have a great reputation?
1: They have, and they do absolutely fantastic work. And I'm, I'm still a huge fan of Doctors Without Borders, even, even after 20 years, and, and a big supporter. And 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 when I can, I give money to them because the work they do is is fantastic, fantastic. The thing with um, with Doctors Without Borders is that they are a humanitarian organization. So we have to make the distinction between humanitarian aid, uh, which is addressing Mm -hmm. the consequences of the violence and peace building, which is what I study in my book, uh, in the front lines of peace and peace building is addressing the causes. Of violence. Okay,
0: so let me let me see if I uh, understand. You're saying that these sorts of operations, outside peacekeepers and aid officials, tend to interact primarily with national level political and military leaders. Rarely venture into the local conflict zones or come equipped with any uh, in depth knowledge of the history, politics, and culture of the countries that they seek to help, and that their strategies almost invariably fail because they don't take into account the needs of the people they're supposed be serving almost
1: almost (laughs) Almost. well correct me please (laughs) yeah they do venture in in local conflict zones but when they do they are actually in um in 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 armored car or in cars that are so protected that they can't fully interact with local populations. When they go in conflict zones and when they go to the local villages, if they're gonna meet with someone, it's gonna be again with elite, with the what I call the usual suspect, the chief of the village or the local militia leader. But it's very, very rare that people take the time to, that aid workers take the time to interact with ordinary people. When they do, it's usually to tell them what to do. It's not to say, okay, what do you think is the problem in your area? How do you think we can resolve it? What would you need from me? And how can I help you build peace in your area? So basically, aid workers, as, as we're perfectly saying, the problem is that we're designing solutions, we're designing peace building programs for people on the ground, instead of working with the people who are impacted by the conflict to help them resolve their own problems.
0: Doesn't the United Nations also have a bias toward intervening on the national level?
1: Oh, yes. Yes. And, and when I, so I've, I've done a couple of presentations of, my, of this book, The Frontlines of Peace at the United Nations uh, in the past couple of weeks. And very often, one of the questions I get from United Nations officials is, yes, but we cannot do that huh? because we're set up to work at the national level. We are an international organization. We have to work with governments. We have to work with diplomats. We're not allowed to talk with people on the ground. To which I answer, it's not true. Mm-hmm. <laughs> i seen many of your colleagues do that. Uh, you can do it. Uh, there are many units that I document in my book that have found a way to interact with local populations, to help them design their, their programs, whether it's in Congo or in other parts of the world. Uh, but yes, that's one of the the usual answer I get, which is, oh, we can do that. We're an international organization.
0: You said earlier that after the warring parties sign a peace agreement, uh, the situation often goes back to where it started within months and sometimes is even worse. So. Why do we persist, or does uh, the, the uh, uh, peace world, as you call it, uh, or you know, peace world is a good one, right? I'm trying to remember what you, the exactly. negative thing. Uh, why do they persist in, in their approach if, it's, if it obviously fails?
1: Several reasons. Um, the first one is that we still believe that it's the best way to go. Because so far, many people tell me, we know there is a huge problem with the way we build peace, but we haven't found an alternative solution that works better. And that's why I wrote this book. It's because my first two books were focused on things that didn't work. And every time people were telling me, okay, I agree with you, there are huge problems, but we don't have an alternative solution. So uh, the front lines of peace is focused on these alternative solutions on all of the things that work so that we can have role models. And uh, the other reasons why the top-down approach persists and the outsider-led approach persists is because, uh, it's uh, it's familiar we have uh, we have organizations that are set up as we were talking about they are set up for that we have routines we have standard operating procedures we know how to do that and al- adopting the alternative solution that i recommend that would mean changing a lot of things within big organizations and you know how organizations just don't like change
0: mm-hmm. You're listening to Let It Low Paid at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. I I talked about your coming uh, to to the aid of WBAI by calling 516-620-3602 or going to give to WBAI.org to keep the show and the station on the air. And uh, one great way to support WBAI throughout the year while spreading out your financial commitment so that it's only a a small amount taken out of your credit card or bank account each month is to become a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy. And BAI buddies are the backbone of our financial support here at BAI because they allow us to plan for the future and give the station and our show a sense of security during these uncertain times. And I'm pleased to announce that any listener who calls right now 516-620-3602 Five one six six two zero three six zero two, or goes to give to wbai.org by the end of today. Become a BAI buddy in the name of Leonard Lopez at large will receive a free copy of this very important book that we are discussing, The Frontlines of Peace, An Insider's Guide to Changing the World by my guest, Severine Othusser. Uh, all you have to do is sign up to become a BAI buddy in the name of Leonard Lopez de la today, and we'll make sure that you get this important book. Whatever level you contribute at, it all helps keep the show going, so why not step up and support the only 100% listener-supported station on New York Radio. Uh, And again, please be sure to make that contribution in the name of Leonard Lopin at large. Some of your fellow listeners have been doing just that. Listeners like Catherine Bauer of Windsor Terrace and Benjamin Jones of Jersey City. Catherine and Ben, thanks so much for doing your part. And to everyone who has donated, thank you so much. We return now to my guest, Severine Otusser, her latest book, the Front Lines of Peace and insight is Guide to Changing the World. It is published by Oxford University Press. Um, you, uh, part of the problem is uh, also that there are all these other issues that we um, that have to be dealt with, like um, like cholera, like um, well, like uh, violence. You say that uh, that violence varies from from village to village and from state to state. So to end conflicts, whether they're big or small, the aid industry should apply guerrilla like peacekeeping strategies that combine a deep knowledge of, of populations and terrain with reconciliation strategies led by ordinary people.
1: Yes, I I do. And that's what's really important is that um, the book is not focused on what doesn't work. I, my first two books were focused on that. But this new book, The Front Lines of Peace, is focused on the uh, situations where ordinary people and outsiders have managed to find a way to build peace. And again, I've found places like that all over the world, in Congo, in Israel and the Palestinian territories, in Somaliland and Somalia. And that, to me, is what we need to be talking about.
0: Uh, the, uh, it's, as I, I mentioned, there's uh, cholera epidemics, you have to take care of orphans, provide health care to wounded people and rape survivors. Uh, but uh, you say you didn't do anything to actually prevent entire population from starving, children from being orphaned, women from being raped and civilians from being displaced.
1: Yes, so that was when I was working for Doctors Without Borders 20 years ago. And when I was focusing on humanitarian aid, so looking at the consequences of the problems, which is extremely, extremely important. And that's why I'm such a big supporter of organizations like Doctors Without Borders. But what got me very frustrated when I was doing this job is that it's a never ending problem. We are not preventing people from being raped uh, or or children from being kidnapped. And, And so that's why I switched to working on addressing the causes of violence and addressing the causes of violence means trying to find a way to, uh, to, to identify the reasons why people are fighting and to find solutions that are acceptable for them and that are gonna be sustainable, that are gonna continue working, not only when uh, the peace builders are on site, but also when they have left.
0: You write, and I'm quoting, imagine if I were to tell you that the United Nations had tasked a conflict resolution expert from say Kazakhstan with ending gun violence in Baltimore, but that neither this expert nor any of her bosses were familiar with American racial politics, police community relationships in the United States, inner cities, debates over the right to bear arms, or even spoke English. You would think this is absurd, wouldn't you?
1: Yes, so that's that's what I write when I talk about the problems with the peace ink approach, uh, because uh, when I when I talk to people um, who work in the aid industry and I tell them that you as someone from the United States or France or Kenya, you cannot possibly understand what is going on in this small village in Mm -hmm. Congo. So why do you just parachute in and talk to people as if you knew what their problem was and and how to resolve their conflict? And very often I get very blank stares, like, what do you mean? Mm -hmm. I, I have this fancy master's degree. I have 20 years experience in the international aid system. So of course I know what I'm doing. And of course I can resolve people's problems. And and one day I was talking with my students and I was getting the same kind of blank stares. And I got this idea of having this thought experiment and trying to show, okay, what would happen if, the roles were reversed and we had, as, as you cited, someone from Kazakhstan who arrived in, in your community and went to resolve problems for you, although that person knew nothing about you, your culture, your society, and your history. And that all of a sudden, my students were like, huh, <laughs> mm-hmm. that makes sense. A light
0: bulb went off. But Haven't you seen some hopeful examples, as in a village in, in South Kivu province in Congo? What happened differently there?
1: Yes, and, and that's my favorite, favorite part of the book. And, and that's what I, I spend most of the book talking about is all of these hopeful, positive, inspiring examples. So the village that you mentioned is the village, uh, it's actually a whole island uh, that is uh, named Ichwi. And it's an island on Lake Kivu, which is this big, one of these big lakes that you have in the middle of Africa. And Ichwi is absolutely, first it's beautiful. It's it's an amazingly beautiful part of the world, but what makes it even more fascinating is that it's located at the epicenter of the Congolese conflict. So it's located right at the border between Congo and Rwanda, which are two countries that have been at war regularly since the 1990s. It's located in the most violent provinces of the Congo in in South Kivu. It is. Uh, it has a lot of features that have led to violence in other parts of Congo, uh, like uh, mineral resources, ethnic tensions, lack of state authority, uh, extreme, extreme poverty, uh, local conflicts over land and traditional power, and we could go on and on. And what's absolutely fascinating about Iduen, what's different from the rest of Congo, is that the island is peaceful because of the Active everyday involvement of all of its citizens, including the poorest and the least powerful of the inhabitants. we
0: so in say Italy, also you say also instead of following conventional wisdom that assumed exiled rebels from neighboring Rwanda were behind uh, the, the violent kidnappings, uh, a nonprofit called, The Life and Peace Institute spent months working with local farmers associations to find out what was really going on. And it turned out that it was actually a small dissident group that was responsible, not the Rwandans.
1: Yes, yeah, so that's another story from South Uh that's the Rasta conflict, where uh, it, at a point we all thought that th- there were a lot of violence, a lot of people dead, uh, a, lo- a lot of fighting all the time, and we all thought that it was a proxy war between Congo and Rwanda until the Life and Peace Institute spent three years, three years with local organizations, talking with ordinary people and with combatants on the ground and asking them the very question we've been talking about today, Leonard. Uh, Why are you fighting? What do you think are the causes of the violence? And how can we resolve that? And they realized that it was not a proxy war between Congo and Rwanda, but actually it was a conflict between her herders and farmers mm-hmm. because uh, cattle often destroyed crops and the farmers retaliated by killing the herders who reached out to local militias who went to attack the farmers' communities and so on and so forth. And so you can Did imagine we- that if you, when you realize it's not an international war, but it's rather a grassroots conflict between farmers and herders, then your solution are going to be completely different.
0: And in that other case that you were talking about in Idwi, didn't uh, a resident joke that perhaps starting a war is what it will take for Congolese elites to pay attention to their community?
1: Well, yes, except that he didn't want Congolese, he didn't care about the Congolese elite. What he wanted is international aid agencies to pay attention to each way because he was saying we're a peaceful area, we're a peaceful part of Congo, and because we're a peaceful part of Congo, nobody cares about us. Yeah. Uh, we don't have the big international aid presence, we don't have all of the peacekeepers, we don't have all of these international aid programs that bring a lot of resources and a lot of jobs to the community. And uh, so he was joking, that was my research assistant uh, in Italy and he was joking like, do you want me to start a war so that finally mm-hmm. you're gonna start paying attention to us? Because Italy is actually even poorer than other parts of Congo. So they absolutely deserve uh, the kind of development programs that we see elsewhere.
0: Don't you also point out that rape as a weapon of war has caused some armed groups to engage in mass rape as, a, as a technique to gain attention and, and a seat at the negotiating table?
1: So that's a that's an argument I made uh, in an article ten years ago uh, mm. at at a time when I was working on uh, the Congolese conflict specifically and looking at how we misunderstood the Congolese conflict. And I was saying, well, there is this idea that the Congolese conflict is driven by a search for mineral resources, that's the primary cause of violence, and that the primary conse- the main consequence is sexual violence, and the solution is seen to be state-building. And then I showed how each of these points was actually a misinterpretation of what was going on in Congo, and I showed that it had counterproductive consequences. And one of the counterproductive consequences of the rape narrative was that because there was so much focus on rape, I had at least uh, a couple of examples of armed groups who purposefully decided that they would use rape as a way to bring attention to their cause, to their fight, and as a way to be invited to the negotiating table.
0: So the the public outcry against the use of rape as a weapon in war actually helps spread the very thing it's trying to fight.
1: Sometimes sometimes in 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 some very specific circumstances but it really depends on how these uh these campaigns are are, are are managed and and how they are led and again it goes back to what we were talking about and and what i discussed in uh in the front lines of peace which is that there is the peace ink way to go about this thinking oh we're going to We're going to resolve the problem of rape for you. And there is the alternative way, the way that works, which is working with communities, letting ordinary people be at the forefront of this kind kind of rape prevention efforts. And that works much better.
0: What's the cure violence model?
1: So the cure violence model is... Exactly what we've been talking about, this alternative method. It's Secure so Violence is a an organization that works in the United States, and that's one of my favorite organizations in the United States because they try to resolve conflict the way I've seen Work in conflict zones, so they go. They work in more than twenty U- U.S. cities all over the country, and they rely on the insiders. So, so, for instance, in places that are uh, that are ridden with gang violence problem, uh, they rely on gang members and former gang members, uh, and they work with them to dis- to think about how they can decrease the violence, how they can decrease the number of shootings and killings. And the people who actually implement these programs are former gang members themselves, or people who used to be involved in the violence, or people from the communities, former victims or parents of victims, or just ordinary members of the community. And to me, that's Absolutely fascinating because when you look at the results that cure violence has been getting in the United States, they've really managed to decrease the number of shootings and killings by, I think the statistics are up to 73% in yeah. some of the US cities. So it's fantastic. Some,
0: some months ago, we actually did a segment on the show about how that works in some public housing in uh, Manhattan and in the Bronx. Uh, so, uh, and it was, we, we were talking about how effective it has turned out to be. Uh, my guest on today's Leonard Lopate at large is Severine Otisere. She uh, has, her latest book is called The Front Lines of Peace, An Insider's Guide to Changing the World, published by Oxford University Press. This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Doesn't positive peace building often occur in places where state intervention is limited? For example, you mentioned Somaliland.
1: Right, so Somaliland is one of my favorite example because uh, for, for your listeners who are not very familiar with the place, Somaliland, it's an autonomous region in the north of Somalia. And Somalia is on the in the Horn of Africa.
0: Wait, it seceded uh, from Somalia, didn't it, in 1991?
1: So they tried. <laughs> they wow. tried. So there was a there was a there has been a really bloody independence war between Somalia and Somaliland in the late 80s and in the 1990s. And uh, Somaliland have asserted their sovereignty and their independence. They consider themselves to be an independent country but i think that there are only a few countries in the world that recognize their sovereignty over the territory so taiwan recently recognized uh, somaliland's sovereignty for <laughs> i mean for reasons because they they're in the same situation um, but so, so others
0: that, the, so others don't because no. uh, the international community doesn't want to encourage more secession
1: exactly exactly so when when you talk to when you go to the United Nations for instance or when you talk to diplomats they will tell you no Somaliland is still part of Somalia it's still part of the country and all of the official maps show Somaliland as being part of Somalia but To go back to the question you were asking about about state building and and the presence of the state, what's fascinating about Somaliland is that it's the best example I've found in the entire world of grassroots bottom-up peace building where people have managed to build peace and to maintain peace for 20 years over a very large territory. Somaliland is as big as I would say, um, North Korea or Syria. So it's really big territory. And in terms of population, it has 3.5 to 4 million people. So it's bigger than the population of Uruguay, for instance. And, uh, and they've managed to, to decrease violence and, and to maintain peace in a country. Again, Somalia is extremely violent. You have bombing and you have terror attacks in Somalia every week. It's really one of the most violent parts of the world, but Somaliland has had no violence and virtually no violence and virtually no terrorism for the past 20 years because insiders, Somalilanders themselves, ordinary people, decided to build peace and to organize their own peace conference at the village level, and then provincial level, and they led the show. They built peace and they built a state that is according to what they want and what they need and what they believe in.
0: So um, Somalia has continued to struggle for decades, uh, despite foreign-run peace projects that cost millions of dollars, while Somaliland uh, has uh, maintained peace. Uh, Doesn't anything spill over?
1: Well, sometimes, yes. When you look at, again, when you look at a map, uh, when you look at the places that are the most uh, unstable in Somaliland, you'll see that these are the border areas with Somalia. And Somalia, of course, continues to try to assert its sovereignty over Somaliland and uh, the terror organization, for example, the, the local branches of uh, the Islamic uh, terrorist group that are very active, the Al-Shabaab, in Somalia, they try sometimes to go to Somaliland, but there is this really interesting story. The last time uh, the al Shabab militia tried to kidnap someone in Somaliland, I mean, that was 13 years ago. And uh, they went in, they kidnapped a German person, and they started taking the German person to an, uh, a remote location. But uh, villagers saw uh, the Al-Shabaab people uh, crossing their village and they, they looked at them. They were like, hmm, these are foreigners, they're up to no good. And the villagers decided to mobilize and to stop the attackers, to stop the terrorists. They managed to stop the attackers, To control the militias and to free the German, uh, the German person who had been kidnapped, and that was the last time that Al shabaab managed to uh, to kidnap someone in Somal, I mean, to try to kidnap someone in Somaliland, which is we don't have we
0: don't have a lot of time. But uh, I'm wondering, what are today's trouble spots? Syria, Yemen, Afghanistan, uh, where else?
1: Well, we have nearly. 50 places that are considered in the middle of a war right now. Um, So, if if we were, if if we could, I would show you a a map. Uh, Mm. A lot of the trouble places are in Africa. You have some in uh, in Asia, in uh, Latin America. Uh, We really have troubled places, war zones uh, all over the world. But what's also really important is that if you look at the countries with the highest number of killings in the world, only half of them are considered to be at war. The other half are countries that are considered to be peaceful.
0: In a country like Syria today, uh, isn't it complicated by the fact that many outsiders all with their own national agendas are, are involved? Uh, we, uh, we're in a tug of war uh, with, with Russia, with Turkey, with Iran, uh, with the uh, Syrian government itself. Uh, doesn't that make it more complicated? Because uh, obviously the, nobody seems to agree.
1: Right. But nobody never agrees in, in a conflict zone. And, and that's why you have violence often. Uh, and the fact that a lot of uh, outside countries are involved is, again, uh, a feature that you see in many other conflicts in the world. You look at the Congolese conflict, uh, the, all of the Congolese neighbors were involved in the war at a point. So the seven Congolese neighbors, the seven Congolese, uh, sorry, the, the seven countries bordering Congo, not only the official armies, but also rebel groups. Uh, if you look at Israel and the Palestinian territories, it's the same thing. You have a lot of outside involvement. If If you look at Oh, Afghanistan, that we've been talking about, you have huge international involvement. So the fact that in Syria, you have several other outside uh, countries that are involved in the conflict is, is, nothing, is nothing out of the ordinary. It's a, it's a common feature of, of current conflicts.
0: I'm pretty much out of time, but uh, do you think anybody's listening to you?
1: Ooh, I hope so.
0: I uh, mean, the people I, you're criticizing? From, from,
1: the, from what I hear and from from what I hear from my, from friends who work at the United Nations and and in embassies and in non-governmental organizations, yes, uh, oh. people are listening. Uh, it doesn't mean that they're happy with what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah. uh, apparently, a lot of people are very angry with me and very upset. But uh, I suggest that they read your other book. A lot people are really happy.
0: They should read your book. It's called The Front Lines of Peace, An Insider's Guide to Changing the World. Séverine Autisseur. It's published by Oxford University Press. Thank you so much for being on our show. It's been fascinating.
1: Thank you so much, Leonard, for having me today.
0: And that brings us to the end of today's show. Special thanks to our live engineer, Reggie Johnson, and to my executive producer, Jesse Lent, for the important work that they do throughout the week. If you're discovering this program and you like what you've been hearing, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're also available on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcasts. And you can find links to all of our past shows on our website, LeonardLowPaidAtLarge.com. If you'd like to write to me, my email address is LeonardLowPaidAtWBAI.org. Um, and uh, as I mentioned earlier BAI finds itself in a very difficult position because of the pandemic so we're asking you to come through for us uh, so we can continue giving you these in-depth interviews one hour interviews weekdays from 1 to 2pm please go right now online to give to WBAI.org or call 516-620-3602 and if you become a, uh, a BAI buddy, a sustaining member of the station uh, you uh, will we, we be happy to send you a free copy of the book we've been discussing today, The Front Lines of Peace, An Insider's Guide to Changing the World by Severino Tusser. So uh, we hope that you'll join us again on Monday when uh, executive editor of The New Yorker, Dorothy Wickenden, will discuss her new book, The Agitators, Three Friends Who Fought for Abolition and Women's Rights. We'll see you then.